Go ahead and find Luke chapter 10 with me. Luke chapter 10. Good to see you this morning. One uh, brief uh, housekeeping thing. Uh, so we have, I have a custom. Uh, when there's five Sundays in a month, the last Sunday night of the month, we do a thing where I um, read a more extended passage from God's Word. We'll read through Ephesians or something like that. Next week is that fifth Sunday. I won't be here next week. And I was afraid that if that did not occur this month, there would be like a riot or something. So to stave that off, I'm going to do that tonight instead. So tonight at five, we'll do our reading thing. And uh, you'll have to come and see what it is we're going to read together. Luke 10 will be there in a second. Uh, Jesus seemed to love uh, revel and revel in, in sort of picking out unlikely people to visit with, to spend time with, to go to their homes, to be, friend, be friends with. Um, he does not fall over himself to commend the generosity of the rich. Rather, he falls over himself to commend the generosity of the poor widow who, get, who gives her two little mites. While the adoring crowds press in on him, Jesus isn't flattered. He doesn't say, wow, look how popular him. He, he, he singles out a diminutive and hated tax collector named Zacchaeus, and he says, hey, I'm going to your house today, and that makes the rest of the crowd hate him. In his parables, he likes to use as his positive examples of faith and humility. He loves to use the examples of tax collectors and widows and lepers and the poor. You know, we get excited with our, with our brief little brushes with the rich and famous. We get excited. Our blood pressure gets up about that. Not Jesus. How, how is someone like that? How is any person on the face of the earth going to impress Jesus? Well, the answer is it's someone who is humble and faithful. He seems to revel in confounding the expectations of what the Messiah would be like. And so today, I want to pick out one particular group of people that Jesus spoke of and associated with a good bit. It's a group of people that all the Jews, both rich and poor alike, would have been united with a special kind of hate toward this group. They were considered to be traitors, half-breeds, infidels. Even the apostles, we find signs of of, uh, harboring, the apostles harboring prejudices against them. I'm talking this morning about the Samaritans. Jesus went out of his way to associate with this group. He told parables where Samaritans were the heroes of the parable, and he told people, you should be more like these Samaritans. So this morning, I want us to think about three surprising Samaritans. Before we jump into that, to fully comprehend the impact of these stories where Samaritans figure so prominently, we need to just begin by talking about who exactly these people were and why exactly they were so maligned by Jews. So to begin with, the region of Samaria was this region smack dab in the middle of Canaan here. In between Galilee up north, where a lot of uh, Uh, Jewish pilgrims lived, sort of an outpost of Judaism up there, which is where Jesus grew up. And then down south, of course, is Judah. Well, you remember, after the death of Solomon, uh, Israel was divided into two, severely weakening the nation. In the year 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was invaded and conquered by the Assyrian Empire, who deported most of the Israelites of sort of standing and talent and all of that, and settled the land with foreigners who then intermarried with the remaining Israelites in that northern kingdom. The descendants of those people, of the intermarriage, and then there are several centuries that pass here, the descendants of those people are what are known as the Samaritans. And so their half-Jewish ethnicity is also matched by sort of a half-Jewish religion. And so they accepted the Torah, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, as God's word as canon, 
but none of the rest of the Old Testament did they accept as God's word. In the year 400 BC, they erected a rival temple called on Mount Gerizim. It was destroyed in the second century BC, but they continued to sacrifice on that mountain, on Mount Gerizim. They looked to that as the holy hill, not Mount Zion, not the temple, but Mount Gerizim. And so their cousins to the south in Judah looked on them with absolute contempt, with a sort of special contempt you could only have to sort of a, a relative. You know, it's one thing to be a Gentile pagan. We, we know about Jewish attitudes toward the Gentiles. It's not a favorable attitude, but you can also kind of say, well, the Gentiles don't know any better. They're out there over there worshiping their gods and all of their idolatry, and what a shame, and, and you sort of wring your hands about that. But the Samaritans, on, on the other hand, sort of elicit a special kind of animosity among the Jews. Because they're not just out there, they don't know better. They should know better. They're traitors. They're heretics. They're half-breeds. We have signs of this animosity between Samaritan and Jew in secular history. Josephus records a story about Samaritans massacring a group of Jewish pilgrims going south to Jerusalem during the reign of Claudius Caesar. And the biblical record reflects the same animosity between Jew and Samaritan. So we'll see it in John 4. Jesus approaches a Samaritan woman at a well for asking her for a drink. And she asks Jesus why he, a Jew, would ask such a thing from her, a Samaritan woman. And John, just in case we didn't know about this, includes this explanation in John 4 and verse 9. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. In fact, the Jews would even travel extra miles around the region of Samaria altogether when traveling north or south through Canaan. And so you see that Samaria region, if you're going from Galilee to Judea, you would often cross the Jordan River, go around on the other side, and then come back down into Judah. In John 8, Jesus had just raked some unbelieving Jews over the coals, and they respond to him with an insult. This is what they say. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? And have a demon. And so they accuse him of two horrible things. That he had a demon and that he was a Samaritan. And it's not clear to me which of those was intended as a worse insult. Or in Luke 9, messengers were sent to a Samaritan village to prepare for Jesus to come through. And the Samaritans of that village didn't want to prepare. They weren't that interested in it. And so James and John ask Jesus for permission to command fire to rain down on the village. They say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come from heaven and consume them? Now, Jesus isn't having any of that, but it's certainly a reflection of Jewish hostilities toward Samaritans. And so when we open the Bible and we read about a Samaritan, we have to have all that background in our head. Nothing good is ever said about them from the Jews, even the apostles. Just pure animosity. And were you to stand up in front of a Jewish audience and say something about a Samaritan that was not outright hostile and even complimentary, it would have at least drawn strange looks. It probably would have gotten you labeled with unflattering labels like Samaritan lover or something like that. And yet the, the Gospels tell at least three stories about, about some surprising Samaritans. One good, one grateful, and one evangelistic. So let's think about these three surprising Samaritans. Number one, let's talk about the good Samaritan. We're in Luke chapter 10. This the Samaritan is actually a character in a parable. Let's begin in Luke 10 and verse 25 and get the context of this parable. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So a lawyer asked Jesus a question to, quote, put him to the test. Jesus puts the question back to him in verse 26. Well, you're a lawyer. You know about the law. What's your read on it? And to give him credit, verse 27, he gives the same answer that Jesus gave at other times. The two great commandments in the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And I tend to think if if, uh, nothing else is said, Jesus would have been content to leave it at that because that is the answer. But the lawyer doesn't leave it there. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And so we're on that second great command, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, well, let's talk about that word neighbor for a minute. So he's given the correct answer to Jesus' question. Knowledge is not the answer. He knows what the great commandments are. But we are told in verse 29, he now seeks to justify himself with this question, who is my neighbor? He wants Jesus' interpretation of that word. He wants to lawyer that out. He wants to, it seems, narrow the category of neighbor to a degree so that he doesn't have to be neighborly to everyone. Maybe he even has has in his mind so he doesn't have to be neighborly to people like Samaritans. It's the question of verse 29 that prompts the entire parable that follows. And just to nail a few things down. The text is clear about the motives of the lawyer from the beginning. His initial question, verse 25, was to put him to the test. Verse 29, his follow-up is to justify himself. And if I could just make a quick point on that. When we are tempted to argue or question, we need to have a good handle on what our motives are for that question. Do we have a genuine question? There are certainly such things as genuine questions. And it is interesting, when someone comes at Jesus with pure motives with a question... He always has time for them. And he always is very very, very uh, understanding and, uh, and, and, and uh, merciful toward them. But there are other questions where, that we ask. And, and there are sort of scrutinies that we give to, to some, some issues, not because we want the truth on them, because we want to justify ourselves, because we don't want to have to change. We want to be able to say, well, what I'm doing is fine and I don't have to change anything. Or just want to antagonize. I always admire the way Jesus handles his antagonists. He doesn't get roped into dumb, pointless arguments, yelling matches that go nowhere. He has a way of turning the question back on the tester. And that's what he does in verse 30. Verse 30, he begins to tell a story. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. It is a story about loving your neighbor as yourself. And so a scary thing happens to a traveler, not unheard of 
in that day and time. He is robbed, he's beaten, he's stripped naked, and he's left for dead. Then walk by two Jewish holy men, a priest and a Levite, men tasked with knowing the word of God, men tasked with leading and teaching Israel to follow the word of God, men who would have certainly known the answer to the question, what is the great commandment of the law? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Two men like that have an opportunity to help, but they don't. I don't know why. Maybe they had better things to do. Maybe they didn't want to make it their problem. But a Samaritan passes by. A Samaritan who perhaps would not have given the right answer on the doctrine test, as those men would have. He passes by. And I don't know what his answer would have been to the great commandment, but we can say this, he acted like he knew it. He acted like he knew what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and the links that the Samaritan goes to on behalf of this traveler are incredible. He treated and bandaged his wounds. He put him on his own animal and he walked alongside. He pays for his hotel room. And then he gives a large chunk of cash to the innkeeper for his care, promising to come back in two days and pay whatever other expenses he might incur. The Samaritan is inconvenienced. He delayed whatever plans he would have had. He sacrificed his own comfort and his own money on behalf of this man. And we are told his motivation, Jesus says, when he saw him, he had compassion. Not the compassion we sometimes feel where we feel bad for a minute and then we go on, or go on with our lives. Not the compassion where we say thoughts and prayers and then we go on without any thoughts or any prayers. He had a compassion that changed his plans for the next several days and cost him a good bit of money. He said, you know, I could help this man. And then he does. Verse 36, Jesus is done with the parable, and he brings it home to us. Verse 36, he asks, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him the money, showed him mercy, rather. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And so now done with the parable, Jesus presents the question to the lawyer. Who was the neighbor in the story? And of course there's only one answer. It certainly wasn't the priest. certainly wasn't the Levite. Remember, the question that prompted the story was, who is my neighbor? I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. We know the law says that. But we need to define neighbor. Let's lawyer this to death so I can restrict who I have to be neighborly toward. And so Jesus tells a story about a man who simply acts like a neighbor. And that man happens to be a Samaritan. Not only that, notice Samaritan is the only description we get of this man. We know nothing else about him. We don't know his vocation. We don't know his age. We don't know his appearance. We don't know why he's on this road. The only important detail about him is that he is a Samaritan. Why would Jesus pick a Samaritan to be the hero of the story? I think we could say without the Samaritan detail, it's still an important story, an instructive one. See, but the Samaritan detail really intensifies Jesus' point. Notice verse 30. The man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, implying I think the man is from the area. That's where his dealings are. Both of those cities, Jericho and Jerusalem, are Jewish cities in Judea, and everything in between them would have been Jewish territory. The whole region is a hot spot of Jewish elitism and Samaritan hatred. And so what I think he implies to be a Jewish man in a Jewish region, is beaten, robbed, and left on the side of the road. And then his Jewish brethren pass by, 
the holiest of his Jewish brethren passed by doing nothing. And then it comes along a non-Jew, a Samaritan, a man who would have probably gotten sneers and little hospitality himself on this road. Had he been the one to lay helpless on the side of the road, he almost certainly would have died there. And yet of all people, this Samaritan goes above and beyond, extending immense hospitality and care. It's a story where the Jews are put to shame by a Samaritan. And among those Jews being put to shame is, I think, the lawyer asking the question. Also notice this in verse 37. The lawyer refuses to call him what Jesus calls him in the story. He's always the Samaritan in the story. He refused to call him that. He doesn't want to pay a compliment to a Samaritan. He simply says, well, the one who showed the mercy. And the final twist in the story in verse 37 is when Jesus instructs him, you go and do likewise. You go and be a Samaritan. You know, it's a funny thing that, you know, good Samaritan has entered into our language as simply a do-gooder, and it's a purely positive connotation. He was a good Samaritan. It would have been a pure oxymoron to the original readers. I was trying to think of parallels. What would oxymoron, what example of that be? You know, delicious Brussels sprouts, uh, competent Dallas Cowboys owner, um, short-winded preacher, right? They just don't go together. Good Samaritan would have hit their ears in the same way. And yet Jesus uses a Samaritan to teach us compassion and hospitality. Which brings us to the second surprising Samaritan what I'm going to call the Grateful Samaritan in Luke chapter 17. So now we're not talking about a character in a story. We're talking about a real person. This is Luke 17 and verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go. And show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he when, uh, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, "We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner?" And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And so here we have Jesus uh, on his habit of, of doing unusual things in people's eyes, very unmessiah-like things. And so in verse 11, he is traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem by way of Samaria, which was a road a lot of people going from that place, from Galilee to, to Judea, would not have gone. They avoided the region altogether because of their hatred of the Samaritans or their fear of them. But here we have Jesus marching straight through Samaria. And then we have Jesus having anything to do with lepers. You know, perhaps the only way to be more marginalized and hated than a Samaritan was to be a Samaritan leper. Leprosy was a terrible ailment that made you a complete outcast. And just layered on top of the infectious disease aspect is a, is a sort of theological stigma that goes along with the illness. Many people believe leprosy to be God's judgment on people for some awful sin they committed. They lived in isolation. They didn't work. They're usually abandoned by their families. They live in their own colonies, separate from the rest of the community. And so Jesus enters a village somewhere on this road, 
and he's met by ten lepers at a distance, keeping their prescribed distance to, uh, to not infect anyone else. They seem to know who Jesus is, have some idea what he might be capable of. Jesus responds by instructing them, go show yourself to the priests. And we are told that on their way to do that, they're healed. Ten of them. And yet we are told of the ten, only one returns to thank Jesus and to praise God. And Jesus asks, we're, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner, except this Samaritan? And so we have one man of the ten. Cleansed of this life-ruining illness, only one of them returns to say thank you. In verse 16, Luke has to just stop for a minute and say, understand, he was a Samaritan. Some say that, that, that mention of this detail implies the other nine lepers were not Samaritans, but rather Jews. But in any case, Jesus points out that this Samaritan is the sole example of gratitude. This is a story about how Jesus feels about gratitude, among other things. He doesn't want people who presume on his blessings and take them for granted. I think we can all share that same outrage when we feel taken for granted for something that we have done. Imagine something do, doing for something something for someone else, and they don't even return with a simple thank you. Jesus says it's the Samaritan leper who grasps his grace, the grace that he has been shown. And he shows the rest of us the proper response to receiving Jesus' blessing. He saw the healing for what it was, a wonderful gift he had done nothing to deserve. There is no entitlement here. There is only gratitude. And, and one of the things I always do with this text, I... Someone told this, said this a long time ago, and I've, I just can't stop saying it when I mention this text. But in the text immediately before this, in verses 7 through 10, Jesus had just told a little, a little parable about how we don't stand before God as equals. We are mere servants of his. Even in our best, most obedient moments, we are all just amount to unworthy servants of God. And when you put these two stories together, that parable and this story, I think you really get our story in a microcosm. We are nothing. And we deserve nothing from God. But here comes God, blessing and healing anyway. And the question is, what will we do? Will we continue to presume on God's blessings, feel entitled to them, and take them for granted like the nine? Or will we return to God, praise him, and to thank our Savior? And isn't it interesting how Luke goes out of his way to point out we could all learn a thing or two from this Samaritan. And so we have in this Samaritan embodied gratitude, a deep, a deep understanding of what God has done for him. It finally brings us to number three. Let's turn to John chapter 4 and think about the evangelistic Samaritan. This is another real-life encounter Jesus has. This is John 4 and verse 3. John 4 and verse 3. <clears throat> he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For John adds, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
And so here we have Jesus again full of surprises. First of all, traveling through Samaria on the first pl- in the first place, willingly interacting with the Samaritans. Again, verse 9 reminds us how unusual that would have been. Equally surprising, she says, the fact that you would speak not just to a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. This is all just very unusual. Now, there is a whole lot to be said about the conversation that ensues here, about living water and the identity of the Messiah. Um, He talks about her uh, living situation, how she's been married multiple times and is living with a man who's not her husband, uh, where the proper place of worship is. All of that is happening here, and there's a lot to be said. But I want to fast forward in the story. What I want you to see is that this Samaritan woman, with, with her checkered and sinful past, is almost immediately on understanding and believing Jesus, is engaged in full-out evangelism. And she speaks with Jesus. She begins to understand that he perceives some things about her that only a prophet could. So this is verse 16. This is her beginning to come to realize who exactly Jesus might be. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband, and what you've said is true. And the woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And as you keep reading, she comes to realize he might be even more than that. This is verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, that Messiah. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of, ta- went out of the town and were coming to him. The text really contrasts the, the, the prejudice of the disciples who, when they come back, say to themselves, what in the world is Jesus doing? Now, they're too afraid to say that to him, but that's what they're thinking. They contra- the text contrasts the prejudice of the disciples with the eagerness of the woman. Their sort of self-consciousness about how this looks and her total unselfconsciousness about how anything looks because she has found something that supersedes all of that shame. She leaves the well. The whole reason she'd come there to gather water And she goes into the city, and she begins to tell the men of the city who she had just met, asking the question, could this be the Christ? This woman, a Samaritan and a sinner, in verse 25, is looking for the Christ. And when Jesus says, I am the one you are seeking, she went and told as many people as she could who she had found. Here is a woman who is more prepared to accept Jesus than almost any Jewish or Levite leader in the Gospels. Go back to the Good Samaritan. How many priests and Levites have this reaction to Jesus? And what happens next, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Quote, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said, we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Here is just a really surprising case of evangelism. The Samaritan woman, a sinner, a bigamist to be honest, discovers the Messiah, believes in him, tells her brethren of what she has found, 
And her evangelism is so right on the nose that it quickly becomes not about her testimony and her words, but about the one she testified about. Now, that's evangelism. It's not about me. It's about the one I'm telling you about. And as a result, many Samaritans come and they believe not in her as some great messenger. They believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Here is a woman who is excited about Jesus in a way that puts the Jews to shame. And in a way, frankly, that puts us to shame very often. This surprising Samaritan woman is one of the first and preeminent evangelists in the Gospels. She brings people to Jesus. So let me say a few uh, concluding things. What is being communicated through these parables and through these real-life events, which singles out this maligned group of people, the Samaritans? At least two things. Let me just end with these. Number one, the first thing we learn from these stories is this. Jesus saw, Jesus saw souls, not skin. We so often judge people prejudicially, superficially, unrighteously. We size them up by their race, by their nationality, by their social status, by the status symbols that they have or don't have, by how they're dressed, by how they look. And we size them up in these ways, and we think that because we know these superficial things about them, we know them. You can almost hear the disciples, Jesus, why are we traveling through Samaria as if there was nothing to be done for these people? Jesus, why are you talking to this Samaritan woman? Or Jesus, can we call down a fireball of judgment on this Samaritan village? That's what the disciples see when they see these Samaritans. But when God looks at these people, when Jesus runs across these people, you know what he sees? He sees souls in need of salvation. All people are creatures of God. All people are made in God's image. All people are objects of God's love. Jesus died for them, the Samaritans, Every bit, as he, every bit as much as he did for Israel. Would to God that we could see every person the way God does. The gospel is for all. It's for tax collectors, it's for poor folks, it's for fishermen, it's for Jews, it's for Gentiles, it's for men, it's for women, it's for slaves, it's for princes, and it's even for Samaritans. Jesus saw souls, not skin. And number two, one's response to Jesus is what tells the tale. In the end, the most remarkable thing about these three surprising Samaritans, the remarkable thing about them is not really that they're Samaritans at all. It is how they respond to God's word and to God's son. They are noteworthy regardless of where they are from. Samaritan or not, we just say this about them. They understood, and they acted like they understood. And in the case of the real people we studied, they respond to God's son with faith and with gratitude with witness. And the same is still true for us. We will stand for God. We will stand before God. And we will not be judged based on the prejudices of others. We will not be judged based on the superficialities that our culture puts so much stock in. We will not be judged based on those things. What we will be judged based on is how we responded to God's Son. And the only question that will matter in that day is, what did you do with Jesus? And so that's my question to you this morning as we end. What will you do with God's Son? He is calling you, whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever your station in life, the only question that matters about you is what you will do with God's Son. If you need to come and submit yourself before Him, if you need to come and repent before Him of your sin, whatever your spiritual need, come forward now as we stand and sing.
we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey.